0: Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Usama Labib, the founder and the CEO of. And I should have asked you how to pronounce the name of your company. What is it? What is it, Usama? Ikla.
1: Hi, Michael. Iklia.
0: Iklia. 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 We spent all that time trying to figure out how to pronounce your <laughs> name, which is easy, and then I didn't ask you how to pronounce the name of your company, which is impossible to tell <laughs> from the way it's written. How are That's you doing? That's a tough
1: man? one to say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how are you doing?
1: I'm very good. Thank you. How are you, Michael?
0: That was the most awesome beginning. I am super. <laughs> let's get a bit of your background for context and then we can figure out why you've named your company Eglia. <laughs> go for it.
1: All right, let, let's start with the, the, the beginning. Um, and thank you for having me today. I'm actually French and Moroccan. So I was born and I grew up in France. Uh, both of my parents emigrated uh, to, to France from Morocco when they were in their 20s because they, they wanted to go to, to university. They liked it so much over there at the States, and they had me and my and my sister. And I think in a way, I just repeated what my parents did when I got my business school diploma at 23 years old. I knew I wanted to travel. I took a, a plane ticket with a friend, got to Singapore, looked for a job, and here I am 10 years later.
0: Is Morocco a French-speaking country as well?
1: It is actually. A lot of people in Morocco speak French. I think it used to be a colony, a French colony, so that is the reason why. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But your parents went close, right? So they said, look, we want to have an education. We want to go to France. We want to have a family there. But you literally went really far away, right? I mean, the (laughs) difference between Morocco and France is big, for sure. But the difference between Morocco and France and Singapore is like night and day. What was the point?
1: The point was to travel. Since I was really, really young, I always wanted to, one, travel, get to know other people and discover the cultures. I grew up in a middle-class family. My parents had, had some means, but not so much means, um, so I think until I, I was 20 years old, I didn't go out of France and Morocco. I traveled mainly through videos and, and documentaries, but one of my bef- best friends actually in France was Laotian, and so I got kind of into the Asian culture really early on, and at the end of my business school, I, I was talking with a friend. I remember it was like a, the, the first of January, um, and we were talking about you know what are you going to do after after your your business school graduation and right. and we just knew that we wanted to travel so we thought that singapore was the best place to to be because it was going to be in asia so we're going to discover a new new culture new country the job market back then in 8 years ago was was good for entry level graduates you only needed to speak english so we took our backpack and and our plane ticket and and got to singapore
0: When I was graduating from college, most of the kids were going into consulting or investment banking. Mm -hmm. Those were the two big choices. Some people went to GE and other stuff like that, but most kids were like, I want to go to Wall Street. Mm
1: -hmm. In
0: in France, when you graduated from business school, what were most of your peers doing? Because they weren't getting on a plane and going to Singapore,
1: right? (laughs) They were not. (laughs) A lot of them were targeting the financial industry. Okay. And that can be working for large banks, uh, working in consulting as well. Yep. Um, I think that's the kind of standard path. You have a lot of people working in marketing as well. For me, it was slightly different. I've always known that I wanted to work in HR Okay. as early as 18 years old, which is a little bit weird when I say that to people. But I've always had this passion for people and individuals. And I knew that I wouldn't feel so comfortable anywhere else in an organization. So I took a, a master's degree in, in HR. I did my internships in HR and I knew when I got to Singapore that the best job that, that I could find was going to be in, in HR. That was a bit more challenging than I expected, but yeah.
0: So I wouldn't call any of your choices weird and you should probably train <laughs> yourself not to say that anymore. Just my unsolicited advice. What I would call it is really self-aware. I mean, if you're that age and you think I don't want to be in this part of the business, I want to be in the part of the business where I'm engaging with individuals because that's where I feel the most comfortable. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I mean, I think most people in their 20s have no idea what they want to do or what they want to be. Is that is that fair?
1: I think it's absolutely fair. I think it's a a great point between almost intention and perception. I don't look at my choices weird. I know that this is what I get from people sometimes when I tell them uh, this because you don't have a, a call for the job you want to do or passion as early as 18 years old when I when I speak as when I speak with other people. Uh, But I think for me it helped me a lot because I got in touch with what I care the most about and I managed to kind of find alignment between what I do in my everyday life and and my passion for people with what I do every day at work so it, it makes my whole life somehow a little bit more Purpose-driven, if you want to use one of the buzzwords that exists right now.
0: I mean, it is what it is, but I'm always a little bit envious of someone like you who realized early on what they wanted to do. I mean, I I told you, I went to Wall Street. I had no idea what I wanted to do. (laughs) My parents were lower middle class, so didn't have the same means that you might have had. And I I say this a lot, like it took me 30 years to figure out, Mm. I don't want to do that. (laughs) (laughs) That's soul-destroying work. I mean, anybody who comes out of that business with a soul is brilliant, but I, I left it without one. But I did find what I wanted to do, so mm. good for you. And, and I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's weird at any level. When you got to Singapore, did you stay in Singapore or did you travel around from there?
1: When we first got to Singapore, the number one goal was to get a job we yeah, had you know a visa so only 3 months here uh, we actually had a a plane back to France 3 months later so i think the number one goal was to say we need to get a job in the next 3 months and we'll we'll start enjoying life a little bit so that's what we did and um, in a lot of ways, it was like a, a 9 to 5 job, you know, we were waking up, getting breakfast, sending resume, going for interviews, adding people on LinkedIn, and just, you know, hit repeats every single day. Right. And once we got uh, uh, the our jobs, and it's really funny, I remember, like, our plane back to France was on the 4th of December. Okay. We both signed our contract, I think, on the 2nd or the 3rd <laughs> of December. That's awesome and yeah, what happened is we signed the contract, we phoned our friends and family, we booked a plane for Thailand for a month because i I like, we thought we we could enjoy it a little bit and and we deserved it, and then that's where we started to to travel a little bit before uh starting on on day one in the company
0: that is awesome, and had you worked before that anywhere else
1: I have actually the the one of the big opportunity we have when we study in France and we do business school is we mix a lot between while well, studying at schools and doing internships. Okay. Apprenticeships. So uh, by the time I graduated, I actually had almost two years and a half of working experience. That's awesome. A little bit in the in the hospitality industry. I, I, I was lucky enough to go and spend a year in, in Bora Bora in French Polynesia. That was a life changing experience. I worked in the oil and gas industry for one year in the, the French training department. That's mainly the, the, the kind of experiences I, I had before.
0: So one of the women that I worked with at Morgan Stanley in the controller's department, I mean, it's a great job if you can get it, and it was fun, and the group we had was super, but she quit like two years in hmm. and went to work in the Maldives. So not yeah. that different than Bora Bora. The world has sort of the same vision of what those two places are, right? It's like this Shangri-La fantasy sort of heavenly That's place it. where you just go and... You know, it's like living in heaven for a couple of weeks, and we were all so jealous of her again because she was just like, "Screw this! I'm going to go and like live a better life." What was it like for you living and working on Bora Bora for a year?
1: Ah, uh, it was, it was the best year <laughs> of my life. I mean, I'm, I'm almost getting emotional when I talk about it. And I, just to put context to it, I, mm. as I as I said earlier, Michael, you know, I didn't travel so much right before I hit twenty, but yeah. I remember. I remember exactly being 15 years old. okay, Seeing Bora Bora on the documentary and laughing yeah. with my dad and telling my dad, you know, when I'm going to be older and I have a bit of gray hair and I've, I've worked long enough, maybe like 30, 40 years right. to travel, I, I'll get there one day. And so that was my kind of retirement plan. If everything happens better than it than it should happen. right, And then I got this one year, like what we call a gap year, where... I could be working for an internship if I wanted to. And I just thought, you know what? what, what the heck, let's send resume in Bora Bora. And I did, I got a message back and I started the interview process for four seasons, which is amazing. And I I had never worked in, in hospitality before. I've never been in more than a like two-star hotel. And suddenly I'm, I'm interviewing and I got a one-year internship position in the HR department for four seasons, where I'm going to be hiring... And training the the people working for like guests like De Niro and Legend Generous. And it was it was just amazing. And I got there, and it's everything you see on videos, that's right. pretty much the same. It's like you go working on a boat, you see turtles on your way to the office, it's 35 degrees, it's beautiful, the people right. are so nice. It comes with some challenges. Sure. Bora Bora is a very small island, you have more straight dogs than people living on the island. And so you will very, very quickly just see everything that needs to be seen. But I think it just, at least for me, it it put me on my kind of straight path of life. uh, Because suddenly you don't have news, you don't have movies, you don't have all of the small distractions in life. Right. It doesn't exist, so it's just about... People getting clear about what is it that you want to achieve, enjoying the very small things in life. And, and that's why it was my my best life learning experience. And from a professional perspective, when you work for a company like Four Seasons, I think it's, it's, it's great foundational skills, especially when it comes to customer centricity, because the, the way they treat guests is just amazing.
0: Yeah, and I'm just thinking back to the 15-year-old Usama, right, who's kind of daydreaming with his father who I don't know how old he is, but has to be jaded a little bit, right? Worked his whole yeah. life, looks at his son who's dreaming and just thinking, good luck with that, but that's probably never going to happen. And it's weird though, right? Because when you actually can, what's the right word? When you envision your dream and then it actually comes to fruition, mm-hmm. I think it has to teach you something about focus. Do you know what I mean?
1: Uh, absolutely. Man. I think it's it taught me two things. Number one is that... And I know it can sound arrogant in a way, but it gives you the confidence that you can achieve anything that you set to yourself as long as you work hard enough for it. And at least that's the personal experience I had. So I think what it taught me from that perspective is that I knew that I was no longer going to close doors myself. Right. Like if I want to put something, I don't really care what other people say. I'm just going to go for it. And, and, and even if it's shooting for the moon, then let's just shoot for the moon. The other thing that it taught me is the high is really, really high, but I spent a year there and I came back to Paris and you move from going to work in a boat with turtles to taking the MRT train in Paris (laughs) and the first six months back to the civilization. Right. I think I I won't say I was depressed, but I think I was really close to it and I think it, it teaches you as well that it doesn't really matter what you have achieved in the past. If, if you're not clear about where you want to go, you're you're just going to stand still. So like the ability and for me to kind of refocus myself, set to new goal, ask myself the right question on, you know, now, now you have achieved almost your lifetime dream at right. the age of 20, 22 years old. What do you want to do now? Right. That, that was a very difficult process, but very insightful in, in the same way, Michael.
0: I love this story and it's interesting too because one of the things you didn't say was that your dad did not say to you that's never going to happen and, <laughs> and the thing is that if you can achieve a goal or a dream really early on in life you're right yeah. what it must say to you is even if other because in later in life you can say you can have another Bora Bora dream right and maybe that dream mm-hmm. is Iglia, mm-hmm. just as an example and so people go that's going to be too hard you'll never be able to do that you can just say hey, dude, I got to Bora Bora, which was <laughs> even more impossible when I was 21 or whatever the age mm-hmm. is. And I may not achieve this, but you're not gonna get in my way. Like you said, I'm yeah. not gonna close the door and I'm definitely not gonna let you close that door on me. Is that fair?
1: Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. And I think it's a it's a perfect segue. It's, it's from a learning perspective, that's what we call kind of self-limiting belief. Yeah. In a lot of ways, people just set, well, believe that we limit their outcome the performance to themselves and there's a direct correlation between your mindset and your behaviors and, and what you can achieve at the end and so the the starting point is to kind of unlock the, those self-limiting beliefs for yourself so then you can have the right behaviors which is uh, going for for the goal that you want to achieve and then you will have the results and you're asking about the the name iclia well i think it's it's born from this because Eclia is a is an Arabic name which means mindset, and we're a learning company, and and what we want to do is is not so much focus on skills or results. That's the outcome that you get by working with us, but what we what we really focus on is just putting the right mindset into individuals, teams, organizations, so that they can achieve the the outcome that they they, they desire.
0: But this is another perfect example, right? So Iklia, you said it's an Arabic word. Mm-hmm. So there's, and there are so many Arabic speakers in the world, right? But where you live today and your target audience may not be part of that Arabic speaking world, but you don't care. They'll figure it out. In other words, people probably said to you, you can't name your company that because nobody will understand what it means. And you're like, I don't care. It's equally, <laughs> I get out of my way.
1: That's, I think that's, that's quite right. I think people who don't know me might have tried. People who know me know that it's, it's not something that's really up for discussion somehow. <laughs> uh, but you're absolutely right, knew I, I knew what I was doing, I knew everyone would struggle, but I have to to start with the belief that you know what, at some point people will know what it is and what it means and that's what I'm aiming for. And I'm not going to compromise on what I care about and who I am as an individual and how I want to leave this organization because because of a, a few challenges I might find in the, in the first couple of years, I'd, sure. I'd rather say let's get to a place where, you know, Seventy percent of the people in Singapore know that Iqliya means mindset in Arabic and that might be a crazy goal, but let's aim for it and then we'll see what happens.
0: In a way, the the irony will be lost on the people that don't understand because <laughs> the whole point is to change somebody's mindset. That's it. So if they can't get past it, it's on them, it's not on you. That's
1: it. <laughs> is that that's is it. that okay? <laughs> no, it is. It is. It just sets the bar quite high for, for for myself and for the team and for the company, but that's 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 where we need to start, I think.
0: So talk to me about this. You spent an internship a year in Borbore, which must have been awesome and insanely mm-hmm. great, right? But again, filled with learning. And I love this idea of moving back to Paris and getting on the metro. It really does have to be soul-destroying at some point because you're thinking, everybody in the world lives like this. And I'm neither better or worse than anybody in the world, but I achieved something when I was 21 or 22 that most people think they have to wait until they're 30 or 40 years older to do. And they're living this life where all they do is wake up at 6 o'clock in the morning, get on a train, lose their soul, go to a job they hate, come home, try to eat, go to bed, rest, and wake up and do the same thing over again. And you went from this sort of idyllic situation back into that. Then you went to Singapore? That's it. Yeah, I get it. And what was the, the impetus Excuse me, to start an ed tech company? What were you doing at the time?
1: So when I first got to Singapore, I started working in in HR. So I did a bit of work in in headhunting. Okay. I then took the responsibility of building up the learning and talent department at IKEA. Okay. First for Singapore, then for the region. And after that, I moved on as the regional director for facilitation instructional design for a leading training company. I also got the opportunity to have leadership position very early in my career. So at the age of 26 i was in the leadership team of ikea and i think throughout these seven years uh, that's that's how long it took me somehow before i, I could start ikea I, I i felt a lot of pain points from a lot of different perspectives number one as as a head of learning and development i also i always had my boss coming to me saying where's the return on investment we're spending so much time and money what for? And I right. and I always struggle, and I know that's that's how a lot of L and D people feel. I was a trainer. I did face-to-face training. I did virtual training with COVID at the beginning. I mean, it's it's a terrible story, but I had people sleeping in my in my classroom at IKEA for the onboarding. So how do you engage people? And I'm a I'm, I'm fairly young. I'm I'm 32 years old. I grew up with tablets, technology, games. And I go in a classroom training where it's still very traditional. So that doesn't really work with me.
0: There's like a whiteboard up there and just standing in front lecturing to people, yeah.
1: That's it. And then you can do a couple of activities here and there, but like that, that's almost not good enough anymore. And, and when right. you know the number of, of growing Gen Y, Gen Z in the, in the organization, that's going to become even a bigger challenge. And the third one is I had a leadership position very early on. I had to lead teams and i had no idea how and what to do around this and i could find a lot of solutions and and i think that's that's what happens in the in the in the industry right there's a lot of solutions for individuals how can you become a better leader but and I'm, i'm an avid learner so i was reading a lot watching videos and yet i still don't know how to engage my team so what we did see what i did see is is a gap between like every organization is organizing themselves with remote and distributed teams and self-organized team. And on the other hand, most of the learning solution that you have in the market are for individuals, uh, but there is a way to kind of help the team develop themselves. That's, that's what I kind of got myself into um, in my consulting years. And so when you put all of this together, we said, well, there's an opportunity not to work with individuals, but to work with teams, help them improve the performance. And help them take responsibility for all of this in a way that will deliver results. Yet at the same time, be extremely fun and engaging. We're using games to do it, and that's the purpose and what we're trying to achieve with uh, Michael.
0: But this is different, though, right? In other words, a lot of people talk about teaching, you know, adding gamification into teaching for for students. Right? Mm-hmm. Just try to make it more interesting. And to be fair, mm-hmm. I used to think when I was a kid, right, you'd have high school students, like you said, they'd be sleeping in homeroom, they'd be sleeping Mm -hmm. in history class, because it was just insanely boring. And there was no motivation for them to learn. And I thought, on the other hand, on the weekends, they could memorize the lyrics to like five different Led Zeppelin albums, (laughs) just with no problem at all. And I mean, word Mm -hmm. for word, and they could say it backwards, upside down, and then they could learn how to play the guitar too. So I always thought, why not just put history to rock and roll music and then everybody would understand like the War of 1812 like they do, yeah. you know, Led Zeppelin basically.
1: No, No, that's that's right. And from a behavior change perspective, there's a lot of research that has shown that experiential learning, and that can be the the same in school or in organization, will help you remember things. I'm I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the 90 day post training, you will forget up to 80, 90% of what has been taught. If you experience something, Uh, and maybe that's music for history or whatever it is this idea of experiential learning you will remember things along the way um, and and that will help you change your behavior because at the end of the day if you if you want if you want better performance you need to change your behaviors you need to have the right mindset another thing just to to build on what you're saying michael because i think it's interesting and and maybe for for people to understand there is a difference between gamification and game-based learning to put it simply gamification is this idea of getting points, a leaderboard, for instance, so this very simple mechanics. So, for instance, you will watch 10 videos, you get 10 points. If you watch 20, you get 20 points. And so there is this kind of incentive to to do more, to learn more, and that will give you points. We're actually not doing gamification, we're doing what we call game-based learning. So you will go with your team and play a game. It's a multiplayer online game that we designed with a research company that will help you understand the characteristics of high-performing team. And the game is going to take you uh, an hour and a half. And what's really, really interesting is that the performance in the game called Mickey Allen is directly correlated to your ability as a team to demonstrate the characteristics of agile and high-performing team. In other way, you will feel the consequences of your choices. Right? If they are great, you will have a high score, and you will remember it. And if they are not, you will die in Michelin, and you will remember it. But this is a little bit the the, the difference between gamification and game based learning as well, uh, Michael.
0: It's a great point. I want to I want to pick up on a word you talked. About. You said agile, right? And I understand how agile is used for computer programming. How it's different than waterfall development, because people have spent a lot of time talking about it. Is there an agile way to teach? the things that you're teaching. And if there is, can you just explain to me what that is? Cause I haven't heard about it in that context. I, I can understand how it would go, but maybe a little bit of an explanation would be great.
1: Sure. And, and the question is about how we work with teams and how we are agile in, in working with the teams that we work with Michael, right? Absolutely. Let, let's start with this. When you coach or work with an individuals, you should have a personalized approach. What you need, Michael, is different from what I need, is different from what John or uh, Sarah needs. Uh, For teams, it's the same. And that's the starting point where we have a personalized team development journey. The starting point is we have a research partner. We have a team assessment. So the step one when we work with teams is that we uh, administer the team assessment that will give us a diagnostic on what level of group maturity the team is and what would the team need to work on in order to develop itself and so it allows us at scale to work with a hundred different teams but have a hundred different kind of uh, personalized journey because the team need to focus on different things whether it's psychological safety whether it's clarification of goal and role whether it's giving more feedback within the team so depending on what the team is then we can work with them throughout the the three to six month team development journey in ways that are highly engaging fun we curate content that are relevant to what the team needs to work on all of this to kind of improve their, their performance at the end and that allows us to have a very highly personalized team development journey
0: that's awesome it sounds so interesting do you still teach by the way
1: I wouldn't say teach, I would say facilitate or coach, uh, but I, I do that, I'm, I'm very close to the the teams and the customers that we work with, yes.
0: Because it sounds to me like this would be perfect for you. I really do feel like you've found your thing. Thank you. that makes sense. Yes. Can you give an example maybe of just an analysis that you've done or maybe an outcome from one of these hour and a half games where, because I think the other possibility is just sitting down with the team together, the six or seven people or the 15 to 20 people that are on the team, and just asking them the questions and trying to figure out, you know, what the real concerns are, the real problems are, issues inside the team. But to me, I always feel like you run the risk that the leadership of the team is just kind of look around and not <laughs> kind of, you know what I mean? And kind of just go, don't answer that question, Bob, because you know what the consequences are kind of thing. That's it.
1: That, that, absolutely right. Look, I, I, I started team development and and coaching before I had this this game that we designed. And I came in and the first interaction with you have with the team is you can do an icebreaker and all of this, but you'll get to the point where it's okay guys, let's 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 try and see where where you are right now. And you're gonna ask a question and and you're gonna have a dead silence. And I think it's it's even more in Asia because of the cultural differences. Sure. You do that in France we love fighting in france it's normal to fight so you will have people saying everything in asia you have a lot of dead silences but you find yourself in a place where it starts to be very difficult for you but also for the team to kind of facilitate the development process the biggest opportunity that you have by playing a game is that all of the fears concerns it gets away because people just put themselves in the game they still have to work together. There's still asymmetry of information. They still need to collaborate. But the second part, which is the most important, is you're going to facilitate a discussion to say, "Okay, what happened in the in the in the experience? What choices did you make? What right. were the consequences? What can you learn out of it?" And then suddenly, you see teams that have an, an enormous amount of feedback and good things. And the thing that amazes me every single time. And I've done it with companies like Microsoft, Spotify, uh, Ernst & Young, some SMEs as well. Eighty percent of the time, the team members and the team leaders know what they need to work on. Right. It's just how do you create the right environment for them to kind of take responsibility and get going on the process. They don't need you to tell them what to do or you can guide them and add a little bit because you're the expert in the field. Right. But. 80% of the time, they, they get everything right. They know what needs to be done. They're just not 100% sure about how to get going. Um, and that's what we help. That's we, we facilitate the process more than teach them and tell them, this is step one, two, three, four that you have to follow. Yeah.
0: To me, I always make the driving analogy, right? Do you, do Usama, you, do you drive a car?
1: I actually don't have a driving license.
0: Bro. Okay, but, but it's, okay, that's even better. So the question I always ask people is, you know, do you have a license? They say yes. And I say, did you just learn from reading the manual or did you have to get up on the highway mm-hmm. and go 60 miles an hour for the first time when you were 18 years old, right? That's how you learn and that's how you yeah. remember through that experience, right?
1: That's it, that's it. And you need, so th- this is kind of a, a word that I think we came up with a concept, which is the idea of instant learnification. You're, you're most probably familiar with instant gratification, the idea that people need to know or need to, to get what they want right now we work a lot with this idea of instant learnification which is very close to what you just said in a sense learners and teams you can't put them in a leadership development program and tell them everything you're gonna get out of it is gonna start showing in in three months six months i want to know right here right now where i am and it means that i need to know what i can deliver and where i will fail and that's what the kind of experience allows you to to get from teams because A good number of teams when they go through mickey allen which is the the name of our game will fail they will die in mickey allen but that's that's all right that's fun let's talk about why you died and let's play again change your behavior and you will see the performance improve so in other way like you get a free crash you know with the analogy of driving a car you get a free crash in a safe environment so that tomorrow when you're driving the car when you're making the decision when you're working as a team back at work you're not going to crash and you're going to have a good performance
0: Is that the likelihood that it's necessary for people to come back into the program? Do you know what I mean? They do a three, six month, 12 month thing. They go through this whole thing. They feel a little bit transformed. The team is better. And there are other questions after this, right? But there must be some kind of what I'll call impact drop off, right? Yes. Three months later, six months after the program or after the training, they're like, they just fall back into old patterns. Or do they come back into the program again, just so it gets
1: reinforced? ideally this is a never-ending process yeah i you think so always need to get going the other thing um, and, and to give context we're working with a research partner that has 30 years of research and development around high performing team there's actually a very well documented well research process to become a high performing team to put it simply there's four stages right and stage four is when you become a high performing team with work and productivity but you start at stage one Which is dependency and inclusion and so there is a never-ending process because you always need to get closer to the stage four but that can take up to 12 to 18 months the other thing is whenever the goal changes whenever you have a new team member right actually starting from stage one again now the question is how fast can you get to stage four so if you are familiar with the team development process you accelerate your performance but you go through the same process every single time um i I play a lot of sports and i had situation where you know from one year to another from one season to another playing soccer for instance we had the same team players and we just have a new coach suddenly everything changes you know you have new goal new direction new ways of playing Um, so you start kind of in stage one and then you just need to get to stage four very very quickly right
0: what position do you play
1: I play, so it depends how good they are in front of me. If they are really good, then I will play in defense. If they are not so good, then I can play uh, attacking. (laughs) (laughs) I got it. I got it. I got it. I
0: think people forget how important that defensive line is. I played soccer for my whole childhood and in in through high school. So I get it. I get it. And you're right. The team can be exactly the same. And this gets back to what you're doing, actually. If the team's mindset changes, even if all the players are the same, and you kind of said this thing in passing too. If the goal changes, That's it's it. an interesting concept, right? Because you've people feel like the goal is always the same, make more money, have more sales, whatever it is. But the goal can change in a subtle way it does. and have it, a gigantic impact, yeah?
1: It, it has. And, and one of the biggest missed opportunity for teams is that the goal changes for the leader and it's not communicated directly to everyone else. So sure. like suddenly you have the team leader that has one goal and if you ask, five different team members, they will give you five different goals. How are they supposed to work together, be aligned and, and pull together? It's impossible. So cannot. this idea of clarification of the role, very often clarification of the roles, how we all contributing to this, um, that's a key process uh, from, a, from a team development perspective. The other thing that that you mentioned, and, and because we're talking about the, the sport analogy, is that you might have all of the best individuals in the team and I don't know if you follow basketball I'm, I'm a big NBA fan Go ahead. Um, and there's this team called the Brooklyn Nets they have all of the best players from the NBA all of the best in all positions and yet they can't even get to the final and they can't win a championship and I'm, I'm kind of asking myself the question when I work with organization they're spending so much and they're doing so much so that they can have the best individuals and yet, if they don't know how to work together in a team and suppress their ego uh, and get a line on the goal, how are they going to perform together? Well, they won't. So no. it's not that one is more important than the other, it's that the two need to be kind of worked in parallel. And, and, and that's somehow what we do. We, can, we kind of complement everything that has already started. So then you can um, get the best out of your team for, for performance improvement.
0: It's a really great example. If you go back to the, to the Golden State Warriors when Kevin Durant joined the team, already mm-hmm. a great team, big concerns about what those egos were going to be like. Steve Kerr, I think, is the coach, right? Coached That's everybody it. into just exactly the right place, and they dominated in a way that had not been seen in the NBA since like the 1960s Celtics mm-hmm. for years. And then Durant said, and I'm paraphrasing, I want to live in New York, first of all, but I also want to have my own team, right? Because it was Steph Curry's team in, in Golden State, Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, they bring in all these players, they're all super great. But then Harden shows up and it's like, now what do we do with all these people?
1: That's it. That's it. It's, it's, ego is great and everyone has ego and, and, and it's almost to a point where you should have an ego. Um, it is very important to manage that in the process. And if I go back to the four stages of high performance, stage two is called counter-dependency and fighting which is a place where team members will start to disagree with everyone else, push back on the team leader, ask clarifying questions. And what is very interesting in this is that it is a required process for you to become a high-performing team. In other words, especially when we work with with teams in Asia, for instance, a lot of people are afraid of conflict, afraid of disagreeing to the team leader, to uh, the other team members. And they are in a place where... Everyone is really polite with everyone else and they think this is psychological safety. This is great. Actually, it's not. It takes you three, four meetings to get to where you're going get, to, to get to. You're going to have everyone say yes in a team meeting and knowing the hallway, You're not going to get there. The right. idea is how can you go through this stage where it's going to be a bit chaotic, but that's going to allow you to have more trust and structure, which is stage three, so that you can kind of accelerate your performance and understanding how to manage this idea of, of counter-dependency in fighting, because what it cannot be, it cannot be me against you, Michael, or me against Sarah. What it can be about, this is the goal. Now we have different ideas about how to get there. Let's talk about this. Let's look at the options. Let's make results-driven decisions. And then we can make faster decisions and get better outcome. But this world of conflict in the team development process and the fact that we help teams normalize it, and have them get through it is, is key from a, a performance improvement perspective.
0: Really interesting. How do you iterate the game that you're doing? Because it can't be static, right? Stuff changes over time. You learn new things. How does that work?
1: The starting point is that the, the game we have designed is is highly complex. So the starting point is the narrative of the game is you're, you're actually going into Hawaii for a three day to a night retreat with your team. The plane is going to crash on Mickey Allen. You're going to have to move from one end to the island to the other end, uh, managing resources. Uh, But a lot of things will happen on the landscape of the island that will force you to kind of readjust your strategy and tactics as you go. Um, Everyone has different profile information sheets. So that's the asymmetry of information. And you have to make collaborative decisions to reach the goal. But we get teams to play Mickey Allen more than once, very often. Like the first time they're going to challenge, they can learn, they can play again, because of the design of the game, there is so much complexity that you can play once, two, three times Mickey Allen. The long term plan for us is to create more learning experience, experiences like Mickey Allen. So then we can not only help teams to become high performing and agile, but maybe start to talk about psychological safety, start to talk about feedback, start to talk about the role of conflict and, and become a little bit more focused on the different experiences always with the intention that we're very serious about helping you to accelerate your performance and get business results. But we wanna make sure that the process of getting there is highly engaging, personalized with our team development uh, and team assessment, but very fun using kind of games and experience for you to understand what needs to be done.
0: Do you also allow, this gets back to the training that you were doing, I believe at IKEA, where your manager said, we're spending a ton of money, but I don't understand what my ROIs are. (laughs)
1: yes it is it
0: is how do you handle those questions now
1: well now it's easy we can say we have a way to measure your team effectiveness we start with the assessment we will know that your team for instance is stage one and has 67 team effectiveness ratio we're going to work with them with six months and then what i tell my clients is hold us accountable like your team has a responsibility but we also have a responsibility to deliver results for you right let's take the assessment again at the end six months later let's see is the team now in stage two or stage three? Is the team effectiveness ratio moving from sixty-seven to eighty-five? That's your return on investment. Why does it matter? Because we know that stage four teams, which is the end goal, um, in stage four teams you will have uh, more satisfied customers and managers. You have—we're talking about mental health. You have lower level of emotional exhaustion, more engaged employees, intense care. You have more surviving patients in the idea of digital transformation you have teams that are able to adopt agile ways of working in a faster way so that's a little bit the end goal that's how we support your overarching business needs for for the year um, and you can hold us accountable because we have a way to measure that
0: do you sit inside this sort of tech startup infrastructure that exists in singapore have you been funded how do people and how do your customers know about you or find out about you as well?
1: We have been funded. So we raised a small round in July last year. We basically developed the product. We brought the product kind of fairly recently. So in, in January 2021. So it's only been seven months in the in the market. But we've been lucky enough, as I said earlier, to work with leading organization like Microsoft, Spotify, Ernst & Young—we've developed a network of partners, training and development organization in China, in Philippines, in Vietnam, in Nordic countries, in France. The way customers have found us so far is through our network, or word of mouth, um, and that's something we're kind of really happy with. We can't scale that, but that's a great starting point. Yep. The fact that people lovers so much that they will tell their friends and their colleagues and you start working with one team and then suddenly you have two more from the same organization and someone else that contacts you because they heard what you did with company xyz Um, so now the question for us is how can we kind of accelerate what we're doing Um, and we're looking at fundraising most probably towards the end of the year so that we can keep developing the products and and start growing a little bit for like the the whole customer acquisition and and keep delivering great experiences and, and journeys for teams
0: that's awesome how can people contact you if they want to get in touch with you
1: they can go on our website www.eclia.com and i'm pretty sure we'll put it uh somewhere in the in the bio because i'm not sure would we we'll know how to spell Iklia. they can also look me up on on linkedin uh usama labib I'm more than happy to connect um and i think that's the main two ways you can you can find us right now michael
0: that's awesome usama labib the founder and the ceo of eclia i got all of that right i'm so proud of myself
1: <laughs> <laughs> well done michael <laughs> thank you so much for
0: coming on the show today
1: thank you for having us michael